0: No, I'm not insulting our listeners. (laughs) Um, I'm just saying I worry about them in the same way that I worry about myself and you, Derek. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the show. It's great to be back on the air one more time in the midst of coronavirus still we are under stay-in-place orders. It goes on and on and on. Will it ever end? Derek is with me. Derek, it's good to have you. We have another Californian with us today, uh, or at least someone who lives in California. We're very excited to have a special guest on the show, uh, Professor David Van Drunen uh, at Westminster. uh, is the uh, Robert P. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. Um, uh, Dr. Van Drunen has written extensively, shall we say, on the intersection of politics and theology, uh, on natural law. Um, he has a new book out, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World. It's a terrific book. Uh, IVP, or excuse me, uh, Zondervan Academic has done a, a really nice job with it. Um, it. It distills, I take it, many years of reflection about natural law and the covenants and how uh, that works. But it also extends that and applies it to a number of contemporary issues. It's it's a wonderful book. We thought that we would spend some time talking about the shape of politics after Christendom with uh, Professor Van Joon. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We're delighted to have you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, we are in the midst of coronavirus. We want to talk about the book. Um, Coronavirus raises. Matt only
1: wants to talk about coronavirus. Matt only. (laughs) Just everything.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I am a petty controversialist. And so if there's a thing that everyone is talking about that's a matter of some controversy, I'm interested. And it just so happens that coronavirus raises. A number of political theological questions that are matters of some controversy, like the scope of the government's jurisdiction over religious bodies, which is something that we have seen uh, come up in conversations within evangelical Christianity and so on as stay in place orders have um uh, certain stay-in-place orders have said that churches are essential business. Other stay-in-place orders have not included churches as essential business. So it is a time in which um, we need to be thinking really carefully about uh, political theology. So, uh, Dr. Van Drunen, what I, what I would like to know is, um, in terms of thinking about Scripture and how um, uh, how the church relates to government— What is it that authorizes government in the first place on your view?
2: Yeah, well, obviously, Scripture speaks about government being authorized uh, by God. There are some classic proof texts of that. Of course, the beginning of Romans 13, we also see it in 1 Peter 2, and one of the things that I am Trying to do in my book is to try to go behind that and to try to think, okay, what's the what what is the foundation for those statements? Because it, it, it's pretty clear that the New Testament apostles were not, for the first time in history, authorizing civil governments. And so, what lies behind those statements? And uh, a big part of of the argument of my book is to say, I think we can uh, we ought to go back uh, at least to the uh, covenant with Noah uh, that God makes at the end of Genesis eight, beginning of Genesis nine, uh, where God uh, enters into this covenant, this 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 uh, this intimate relationship with the created world as a whole, and specifically with the entire human community, and uh, among the things that He authorizes there uh, is that we ought to be pursuing justice uh, and. Um, so I make a I make an argument that this is really foundational for how we think about uh, about government. That actually this uh, the the work that government does in promoting justice in this world. At least that's what we want government to do. Not that government often does it all that well. But that what we think that government's job is to do uh, to promote justice uh, actually uh, is grounded in this intimate relationship that God established with the world uh, after the Great Flood. Hmm.
0: So that. Let me, can I ask you to unpack that a little? Because I think for our listeners, um, and certainly for me, the Noahic covenant is not the first place that I think we would look for Old Testament guidance on the nature of government or the like. Um, It seems to me that it is more intuitive or natural, even to look at something like the garden, uh, to see commands to be fruitful and multiply and to govern the earth as in one sense, authorizing a certain type of government. Why the Noahic covenant versus say the Adamic covenant, if it is in fact a covenant?
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's true that uh, when we look at uh, even the very beginning of history, that we see that human beings are called to, uh, to rule. In fact, that's the very first thing God says when he creates human beings in Genesis 1, uh, 26. He says, uh, let us make man in our image of likeness and let him rule. Uh, and so there is certainly this uh, a kind of a general authority that God gives human beings to exercise a kind of benevolent dominion uh, uh, in this world. But at the same time, we recognize that in a a sinless world, uh, this kind of authority uh, to rule is going to necessarily look at least in some important degrees different from the kind of rule uh, that human beings have to exercise uh, in a fallen world. So I do think that there are sort of organic roots to what we find in the Noahic covenant in the covenant of creation. But I think one of the one of the really helpful things about focusing on the Noahic covenant is that this is specifically geared for a fallen world. Uh, and so in Genesis 8:21, uh, right at the beginning of the account of this covenant, uh, God says, uh, "The heart of man is sinful from his youth." So there's this acknowledgement that this is. Uh, this is an order that God is putting in place to preserve a fallen world. Uh, it's still a world with a lot of good things in it. Uh, it's still blessed by God in important ways. Um, but even though we can certainly learn things about the the human task for sure from uh, the creation story, uh, the Noah covenant provides a kind of a grid for thinking about: okay, what does what does authority, what does doing justice look like in a world that's filled with evil? Mm. Um,
1: I just want to pull on that thread a little bit. Would you say that um, in that sense, the Noahic covenant uh, reauthorizes or uh, takes up uh, Adamic tasks and then um, continues them on? Because like you say, Adam's a king, Adam's also a priest, uh, and Adam is presumably like the socio-political covenant ruler and head of the human people at that moment. And, and so I think one of the things that you've got going on here is a authorization for human government. And I think the reason, you know, if I'm picking it up, right, the argument is that part of the part of the benefit of looking at the Noahic covenant is that it is also specifically a common covenant, not a, uh, redemptive or, um, yeah, a redemptive historical covenant in the sense that it's not connected to uh, the promises of uh, a holy people and uh, God's set apart people, uh, Israel and so forth. And so um, is it almost like the Noahic covenant is we're going to pick up half of Adam's task, reauthorize the rest of humanity for that. But the priestly function of Adam, we're just going to put that to the side. Is that I mean, is that also part of the argument there or? Am I just picking a thread that's not there?
2: No, I think that 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 is definitely a thread that's there. Yeah, um, just to sort of back up, and I, I don't. It's uh, it's great to have this conversation. I don't know uh, 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 how much all your listeners are 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 into these sorts of things, but I, I yeah, I, I would certainly agree that there's when we look back at the original creation stories, uh, uh, Adam is both a king and a priest. He's a king who's called to exercise dominion. Uh, and he's a priest who's given this task to be guarding the, this holy garden. Um, and I think a good exegesis of Genesis 2 brings that out. And so um, uh, as I read the Noahic covenant, then uh, I do see a kind of a, a, a kind of reauthorization of that kingly function for sure. Uh, and there is still this call to be. Uh, being fruitful and multiply uh, to be doing justice uh, against those who are violent. And uh, I think that's definitely, uh, there's, it's definitely there. The the term I like is that it's, it's, it's refracted for a fallen world. So it doesn't look exactly like the dominion mandate in Genesis one, but we can still see a lot of similarities there Um, with the priestly function that, that, that is actually an important uh, thread of the book in that, uh, I think you know what we when when we look at the tasks that are given to uh, the human race in the Noahic Covenant, they're not you wouldn't say priestly functions. There is no holy garden or a holy land that they are given to guard. Uh, the Noahic Covenant is is it, it's remarkable in that there are no redemptive promises. There's no no promise of the forgiveness of sins or a coming Messiah or a new creation. Um, there's um, there are no Means of grace, you might say, that are given to Noah. Um, uh, so it's it, it it does seem to be this kind of reauthorization of that kingly function, and a kind of a, in some ways, a kind of a glaring absence of this sort of priestly regime. And uh, if if I guess if, if if scripture ended there, it would be very problematic that we didn't see that. I think what we do see is that that, uh, that holiness, that priestly aspect that, and, and now in a fallen world, this redemptive aspect, uh, gets picked up. And of course that becomes the major theme as God enters covenant with Abraham and then with Israel and then, uh, with the new covenant church.
1: So let let me ask you, so this is, I'm going to just go ahead and be nerdy and Presbyterian for a minute. Um,
0: (laughs) which is your default mode. Let's be clear. (laughs) Just for a minute, Derek, come on. If People have
1: been listening to the show long enough. This will come up. Um, (laughs) so uh in real in, in that relation so so uh you know the Noahic covenant is different than most of other covenants in in some key ways but uh just for my own curiosity how do you, you then relate it to um kind of more the re- the semi-redemptive sign of uh you know the flood and then the rainbow and god's covenant to not destroy the earth that's, that's still kind of a general thing but but the flood then is later in the new testament picked up as a uh, sign of baptism and you know kind of typologically pointing forward to a, a redemptive situation so this was a question i had in just in how we how your uh, categorization of the Noahic covenant as as like a strictly common covenant relates to uh the fact that in other ways it's picked up in redemptive ways in the new testament and it overall serves as a sign towards god's common mercy that ends in special mercy kind of thing.
2: Yeah. yeah thanks. No, that's uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to try to elaborate on that. Yeah. I, I think it is very important to, th- to see that. Uh, I mean, God's certainly God's earlier work with Noah was, was thoroughly redemptive in nature. So God, God brings this great flood, which is, as uh, the new Testament makes clear, this is sort of this, this great sign, this great harbinger of the final judgment, which, which is going to come. And so God very mercifully saves Noah and his family from this uh, this great destruction. And, 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 and in fact, in Genesis, I think it's six eighteen. There's a mention of God makes a covenant with Noah before the flood to rescue him from this. And uh, and that's that that's an important part of this, of, of of the broader story, obviously. And uh, so I would say yes, the, that that flood is a it's a sign of the final judgment and God's rescue of Noah in the ark through this flood uh is a great sign of God's redemption, which as you're saying, it gets picked up. Um Peter picks it up in the New Testament talking about uh relating the flood to baptism. And uh so I I, but I think what's crucial is that once we uh when we get to the end of Genesis eight, the flood is over, they have, have gotten off the ark, and now there is a new covenant that God makes which which has very different terms from that covenant that God made with Noah before the flood. Before the flood, it was, this is, I'm going to save you and a few members of, of, of your family. And now after the flood, it's this: these promises to preserve this world that extend actually to the whole human race and the whole creation. So it's very different from what was made uh, um, before the flood. So uh, so that's that's part of the answer, I would say. So I, I would acknowledge all that you're saying, but then I'd point out that what goes on this Promises after the flood is something different from that redemptive action through the flood itself. But then I would also point out, uh, and this is very important too, is that it's not as though this these promises of common grace of preserving mercy in the 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 post-flood covenant are totally unrelated to God's saving mercy. In fact, that's that's not true at all. Uh, It's uh, I mean, if if there was no if there was no common grace in the Noahic covenant there could be no saving grace that God brings to Abraham and Israel and and Christ himself. I mean, if there wasn't the Noahic Covenant, there would be no world to save. Uh, if there was no Noahic Covenant, there would be no human race in which Christ could become incarnate. Uh, and so um, e- even though the Noahic Covenant itself doesn't administer the saving blessings, it's, I would say, a crucially important foundation uh, it sort of sets the stage upon which the the story of redemption then can can play out uh, in. In, in the ages to come.
0: Let me let me follow up on this, because I think it's it's it, for our listeners. I mean, our listeners love this sort of stuff. In fact, I worry a little bit about our listeners, about how willing they are to get into the weeds on Matt, of this stuff.
1: Matt, do not insult our listeners again.
0: No, I'm not insulting our <laughs> listeners. Um, I'm just saying I worry about them in the same way that I worry about myself and you, Derek. Um, so but I think like for our listeners, I, there are things that hang on this. Like the opening question was what authorizes government Uh, and it seems like what authorizes government is heavily accented in your view, uh, by in a fallen world, right? What, what authorizes government in a fallen world. And when we talk about the Noah covenant and the relationship between common and special grace, um, one of the ways that this is going to cash out for you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is we're going to say no to something like establishment, the establishment of a a church. We're going to say no to something like even Christendom. um, and my question is, as you, as you describe the Noahic covenant, it, you describe the common grace as a foundation for special grace. And in your book, you, you, you talk about nature preceding grace um, and nature having a certain kind of priority over grace. And I have two questions about that. One, is creation a grace? So is is the creation of nature? Does that count constitute or count as um, a, a dispensation of grace? Um, and two, in your description of the Noahic covenant, you you granted that the special promises to Noah and his family precede the extension of the commonality of grace to everyone. And and as you describe that, it seems like the sort of specialness of grace really does come first before we get to nature. So I, I guess I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you relate those things.
1: Matt's, Barthian my, note. Matt's yeah, Barthianism just, is coming it, through right there. Just it little is. Gospel no, for the it while. totally okay. is. Wrote sorry. my dissertation
0: on Bart and the view it. of creation. And that really, okay, so I will own that this is a little Barthian moment for me.
1: Okay. Sorry. Just keeping Matt honest.
2: Yes. Um, uh, certainly my way of handling nature and grace was not exactly Barthian. I um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, on the uh, uh, on, on your first question about uh, grace and creation, um, I mean, I, I I think a lot hinges on the way we're defining grace. Uh, I mean, if we if we define grace in a kind of a general way as God's kindness, God's generosity, God's liberality, then I think sure, sh- then absolutely creation is is a work of God's grace. So we, we certainly see his his kindness and. Generosity abounding uh, uh, in creation. Um, if we define grace in a more in a in a narrower, more technical way as being specifically a response to sin, a response to rebellion, which I think is the way that scripture ordinarily uses it, then I would say it's important to say that creation is not a work of God's grace. Uh, there was no need for that kind of um, that forgiveness, uh, that kind of redemptive work. Uh, in in an unfallen world, uh, and so I mean I I, I you know I, I I would basically say uh, if you're going to ask that question, then I think just define grace really carefully, and, and you you almost answer the question for yourself uh, depending on on how you answer it. I mean I would it seems to me for uh, for for clarity's sake and for. Uh, uh, sort of confining our language as closely as we can to that of scripture, I would prefer the second kind of definition of grace. I would prefer to to talk about grace more in terms of a response to sin and rebellion. And so in that sense, I would say creation is not technically a work of God's grace. That's a a response to the fall. Um, Now with your your second question then, uh, which is good. And I would say that, uh, yeah, we we see uh, in, when God comes to Noah before the flood and, and shows this redemptive mercy to him. um, uh, Yes. I mean that in in time that, that obviously precedes that those promises of uh, common grace preservation that we find in the covenant after the flood. Um, But I think if we look at that, this in the, in, in the broader, broader biblical perspective, um, there's a real sense in which the the story that uh, of scripture say between Genesis 3 or maybe Genesis 4 and Genesis 8 is sort of a history of the world in miniature you might say uh, that the uh, the great flood was th- this great sign of the final judgment so there, there's a sense in which the world the, the, the first world ended uh, at that great flood in fact uh 2 Peter 3 refers to it as the world that then was. Uh and then after the flood is the world that that now is. So there's a sense in which when God enters this covenant with Noah uh and the entire world after the flood, it's almost as if there's a there's a kind of reset button that is that is hit. I mean, it's not it's not that's not entirely true, but there's a real sense in which history is kind of starting over here. Uh, and matter. so there is kind of this reestablishment of the natural order. And then given that reestablishment of the natural order, now God's, God's work of grace is going to be playing out on that stage, we might say.
1: So, so there's a sense, I, I think what Matt and is trying to draw out, there's that dialectic between, you know, the world is there for the church. And at the same time that the, the world is there because of the church and, and so like how much, which is a precondition of which or which is aimed at, at, at that. And so I think part of that, my question related to that. We could just is, say,
0: Derek, that the covenant is the inner basis of creation and creation is the external oh ground of the
1: covenant. <laughs> I will stick with grace redeems and restores nature. Um, uh, no, what I was going to say was, so with, with the foundation of government question, though, It sounds like, I think what we've been playing around with is the issue of with Noah picking up Adam's, uh, re the reauthorization of one thread of Adam's commission is that you in some sense have the authorization of like governance in creation itself. And in the Adamic covenant, you get like, there's a thing governance, it would have been different pre sin. And then now like governments, in a sense, are authorized in the Noahic covenant with, you know, specifically power of the sword kind of authority. So is that what I because because that's part of the question I was wrestling with is there's a sense in which human communities, and human sociality and the need for, like, unfallen uh, uh, authority, relations, just, you know, free, open, delegation of uh, and direction of society that that's that's an that would probably be an unfallen reality with like adam the king and so there's that unfallen reality that is then like you said re- refracted then and narrowed i'm taking it in the noahic covenant and so you've got like governance in creation and then like governments in post noah that's my my clumsy formulation, but is that, is that kind of what we're looking at here?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, um uh, I think so. It, it is, uh, certainly, uh, well, uh, th- you know, there's certainly a sense in which we, we want to be careful about speculating too much about what life would have looked like, uh, if Adam hadn't sinned. And it, there's, uh, it's hard for us to kind of put ourselves and imagine what it's like to live in an unfallen world. But I think there's good reason to think, uh, there, there would have been authority structures, Uh, and we obviously would have had things to do as human beings. And so that means that we would have needed to form communities, associations of, of sorts, and that there would have needed, would have had to be authority structures in those. And so I, I I think this is what you're talking about with governance, right? And then, but, but after the fall, I mean, after the fall, we still need, we still have things to do. We still need to form communities, associations. We still need authority structures, but the reality of sin means that there is, uh, for one thing, uh, we we have to have more modest expectations about what we can actually accomplish. Um, you know, it, it is interesting that in the in Genesis one you have this talk about you know this call to uh, uh, to subdue uh, to exercise dominion, where you don't actually have that language in in the Noahic covenant. It's almost as if you know we we got to like tamp down kind of the expectations for what, what we can accomplish. But what you do have in Genesis nine that you don't have in Genesis one is the authorization of the sword, right? So it's, he who sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed in a pre pre fall world. You don't need There's, there's no need for a coercive response to wrongdoing because there's no wrongdoing. So, um, so, uh, if, 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 that's what you're, you know, you're using government, uh, in that sense of a sword bearing, justice enforcing in a coercive way kind of work, uh, which I think we have to say, I mean, that is, that's not just kind of peripheral to what government is about, yeah. you know, but I mean, it's, it's really central to almost everything government does, even though not everything government does is explicitly coercive, but it, it that coercive force really underlies everything government does. So, um, so if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, I think, I think that that is capturing uh, the way I'm thinking. Uh, but I guess you can tell me if I've actually kind of said things that... If, if no, that's
0: helpful.
1: I'm I, just trying to get clear for, for yeah. myself the thesis there. And, and so that's helpful. Uh, so, Matt.
0: yeah. So let me um, transition just a little bit to think about how this cashes out institutionally for Christians with respect to the state. Um, it is called Politics After Christendom. And so, one question is: um, Was Christendom an aberration? Was it a problem? Uh, or, and here I'm just going to have my my little Oliver O'Donovan moment. Um, or was it a legitimate response to the mission of the church? Is the church's witness to the truth of the gospel a necessary pedagogue? uh, or pedagogical aspect for the state to enact justice appropriately. Um, I think that's, that's, that's one question I have and, and related to that, um, should like practically, I'd like to think some about like, how should Christians relate to the state? Um, should they be seeking on your view to, uh, conform, the state to certain norms that say may be sharper in the gospel, even if they're there in the natural law.
2: Okay. Yeah. Uh, to, to answer your first question, uh, it might be helpful if I just take a moment to say what I, what, what I understand by Christendom. Cause I, I, not, not everyone uses that term in the same way, obviously. And, yeah. um, by that, I, I, I mean this sort of long, um, this long experience that uh, Christians had, particularly in, in Europe from, it's hard to know when it, when it started exactly, the, the, the very early Middle Ages uh, into uh, quite a long ways into the modern, uh, modern world uh, up until fairly recently in which uh, entire societies considered themselves Christian in which basically all, all institutions of society Uh, were were confessionally Christian. Um, We know that these different institutions didn't always get along very well, but they all saw themselves as part of a broader Christian world. And it was really uh, almost unthinkable that you would have governments, for example, that did not consider themselves Christian and feel that they had some responsibility to be protecting and promoting the true church and to be suppressing those who taught and worshiped Otherwise. So, so, so that's what I would, I mean by it. And, uh, uh, so to get to your question now, then, um, I would say that Christendom was an aberration. I mean, it's a very long aberration, you might say. Right. But, but I would say that, um, given my, the, 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 the theology that I am building in this, in this work, uh, that the New Testament does not give us to expect that um, Christendom is to be the result of the gospel and it doesn't call us as Christians to be seeking Christendom. Um, And I think it also gives us reason to actually be, uh, be wary about a kind of a Christendom uh, uh, idea. So um, I mean, I, I certainly, I think it is very clear that the gospel is to go out to all people, and that includes civil magistrates. Uh, that includes people who are in power. Uh, and so the the idea that, uh, that kings, rulers, would be confessing Christ, I think that's something that Christians do seek and that we rejoice in. I think what becomes much, I, I think more, more problematic, is the idea that we are seeking institutionally, unified christian confessionally christian um nations societies um so uh, if if you want to follow up on that that's fine but you know maybe i'll i'll just
0: yeah leave it so, there so ireland ireland and zambia um both of which have written the trinity into their constitutions essentially right out, uh, to use the Monty Python (laughs) phrase.
2: No, uh, that's right. Yeah. 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 I would be, I I would be, uh, opposed to that. That's right. Yeah. Derek, you were going to say,
1: yes. So here I have a Presbyterian moment again, um, for somebody who hears that and thinks, okay, there's issues with Christendom. Okay. But what about chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of the Civil Magistrate.
0: Whoa. And, this and, is a hardcore Presbyterian <laughs> moment. I am I just I just went to sit I, back I and I just watch. went
1: through, I just went through ordination like a few months ago. So I gotta we ask. Go. Um distinguish your take from or like how uh that caches out I mean I I know you have it uh with with a line like uh when you know it's it's talking about the uh the responsibilities of civil magistrates and third you know it very clearly says civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys or interfere in matters of faith yet as nursing fathers it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common lord without giving preference to any denomination of christians above the rest and so on and so forth um like how how does one do the as nursing fathers, and at the same time, hold back and let's not do Christendom.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, that's great. I mean, I think for, for historical perspective, it's, it's, it's helpful to, to think about the, the, the origins of, of those statements. I mean, when, when the Westminster Standards were originally written in the, in the 1640s, uh, I mean that was I mean Christendom is still alive maybe not exactly well but it's certainly still very much alive and uh, the the original version of the Westminster standards um, I mean it took a very I mean it, t- it took a way stronger view than the one that you're um, yeah. you know you know what what you're saying there where it was basically uh, be, civil magistrates need to suppress false religions and punish blasphemies and all that so um, the 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 version that we use, you're PCA. I, I'm in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and so we use the American. I read it, I read it
1: off of your website, so that was I used the OPC version. <laughs> just oh, that's to, great!
2: Yeah, well, it's actually the same as the PCA <laughs> version, but still for. Somehow the OPC version is better, even though it's the same. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, your your website actually is clearer is cleaner on on ease of access. I'll just I'll just own that as a PCA. The OPC guy.
2: is very very tech savvy. Yeah.
1: we we use the PDFs, and it's like okay, but what if I just want it? Okay, so keep going. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay.
2: Um, so in in the um, uh, shortly after the American Revolution, the American Presbyterians um, revised the Westminster Standards on. Um, a number of points that dealt with the civil magistrate and um, took out uh, some of those, I, I think what, what I would say are some of those uh, kind of explicit Christendom-driven uh, statements. And so I, I really appreciate the fact that I mean, the American Presbyterians actually made those revisions. And uh, so th- the way I would I would read that statement is uh Yes, I would agree that civil magistrates ought to be protecting the church in the sense that um, we ought to be protected in our liberty to to gather for worship, our our liberty to be speaking uh, the gospel and uh, the truth of Christianity uh, freely. Um, now, I would go on to say, and 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 this isn't in that statement that you read, but it's not it's not. Uh, prohibited by that statement you read either, which is I, I think that the, uh, that governments ought to give similar protection to other sorts of religious bodies. Uh, I don't think I don't think the civil magistrate in fact has the competence to determine what is the true church and what isn't. Uh, what is you know what is right theology uh, what isn't I mean I, you know I could if I wanted to be provocative, I could say, you know do we want Donald Trump or Gavin Newsom? or Barack Obama, uh, to be making determinations about what is, uh, what is the religious body that ought to be protected over against others. I I don't think any of us, I I don't think probably very many of us, uh, who are engaged in this conversation want, you know, want that sort of thing. So, so I would say, yes, there, there is an important place for that. Uh, I mean, you know, at the beginning of first Timothy two, uh, Paul says, you know, pray for your, uh, you know, pray for all people, including civil magistrates, that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives. And so, there is this sense that when civil magistrates are doing their work well, when they're protecting justice, that is going to have benefits uh, uh, for the church. So, so that's the way I would I would try to approach that.
1: Thank you. That's that's helpful. I didn't mean to. That I mean that 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 was the itch that was scratching there. Uh, <laughs> I, what I wanted to
0: ask is you were talking about Donald Trump and Gavin Newsom was, you know, what about the very learned, uh, theologically minded James the first, you know, <laughs> who brings together England around the King James Bible? I, I might be OK with him making certain theological decisions for the the English, um, but that's that's, you know, I, I I might be OK with the present queen as well. May she live forever. The sort of statements that we've gotten from the queen over uh, the last month have been terrific reminders of uh, the value of an institutional christened. Yeah. So, I, well,
2: you know, I mean, there's a sense in which you say, well, you know, if if I was king or, you know, if, if I was autocrat of the world, then, you know, maybe I would be all right. Or maybe someone who thinks exactly like I do. But, you know, the odds of, you know, of, that of, 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 of that person being in the right place in the right time is not very high. And then I think it, it really does come back to, uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, where does scripture, uh, to whom does scripture give the keys of the kingdom, uh, yeah. to whom does scripture entrust the responsibility to make, be making right theological judgments and, and it's, 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 it's to the church and not to the civil magistrate. So I I have
1: a question that I want to follow up and it's going to take up something Matt asked earlier. So kind of reintroducing, um, on all this, we have not even touched barely at all on the very important role that natural law plays in the discussion of your book, which was a really helpful, uh, really helpful retrieval, really helpful, biblical grounding. Um, uh, but Matt was asking earlier in terms of, um, now that we we do live, okay, this side of uh, cross resurrection, ascension, Christ is ruling, and so on, so forth, the, the church is established. Um, you know, the, the, the Noahic covenant authorizes common governments to uh, execute justice, and you make a, a, a point that this is mostly referring to, uh, and most of the way we should engage uh, politics is, um, In the mode of kind of natural law thinking natural justice that is commonly available uh through you know reflection on reality and wisdom and so forth and um but for the church that raises the question okay but what does the church say when it comes to like its proclamation with respect to justice like in where is does the church have a role to play in um speaking to the governments of the world and calling them to repent of injustice so for instance if there's think places where they violate uh the common order where they violate natural justice um does the church uh proclaim to the magistrate you have sinned and do we only do that on the basis of, of of natural law or do we also uh, proclaim against them on the basis of scripture and the ordinances of Christ. And, and where, you know, in a sense, where, where do I start, where do I stop, um, citing like Aristotle and where do I pick up like the epistle of James and can I do both and and what's, what's appropriate there for the way we think about these things?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's a great question. It's, it, it, it's also kind of a complicated question in certain ways. I, I, don't Sorry, have, yeah. I don't have sort of a 15 second answer to that, but <laughs> here are a few thoughts and you know, you can see. That's okay. To...
0: Derek, Derek didn't ask a 15 second question. That's true. So. No. Yeah. Yeah. If you ask no. a
2: long question, you have to expect a long answer, I guess. Yeah. Um, first of all, I mean, I, it, it seems to me that, that uh, uh, the church, uh, uh, what the church is called to do is to be proclaiming the scriptures Um, I mean, it's not really, uh, I think it'd be tough to to make like this case from the New Testament that the church's job is to be the exegete of natural law uh, in the sense that the scriptures, uh, the church's work is to be proclaiming the word of God. And so uh, I I would start there. And then I would also say that it seems to me that uh, when, uh, that the church does seek to address the whole world, it's not just speaking to its own people within its own walls or its own uh, YouTube feed on Sunday morning. I'm, that's you know, only temporary, right? Um, but uh, we, we, we want to get the word of God out to the whole world. I mean, we have this evangelistic mission. And so it seems to me that, that what, what, when, when the church thinks about addressing the world, uh, including those who are in civil power, uh, that what it is primarily doing is preaching the word of God showing the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. That is that—that that is its work. Uh, it's, it, its work isn't so much trying to tell civil government how to do its job properly. In the same way that I would say it's not the job of the church to be telling the small business owner how to be running his business. Uh, it's, 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 uh, the church's work is not to be basically a micromanager of all the other institutions and associations of this world. So I think there's a kind of a basic jurisdictional issue. Um, Now, I mean, having said that, it it, it is uh, obviously as the church is ministering to people who are business owners, or as it's ministering to people who are in civil office, uh, it is going to be trying to preach the whole counsel of God and saying things that are relevant to those various kinds of activities, uh, uh, in life. And even if it's not going to be trying to micromanage the work that all these people are, are, are doing out, out in the world, it is trying to trying to build wisdom, uh, uh, in the people that it's, uh, ministering to. So uh, those are some of the basic, uh, parameters in, in, in terms of that, maybe that, that question, which, which might be sort of at the core of what you're asking, which is there a place for the church to, sort of um, make some kind of pronouncement uh, towards civil government as an institution or something like that, or a particular political leader who's not a member of the church. Um, It seems to me that the church needs to be very cautious about that. Uh, At the same time, uh, if you want to turn back to the Westminster Confession, uh, I think there's a very helpful statement. I think it's 31.4. Uh, where it talks about, you know, that the the church's business is is ecclesiastical rather than civil, but there may be extraordinary circumstances in which uh, the church will make certain appeals to uh, the civil magistrate, and so uh, I think that there are occasions when this this might happen. Now, okay, so I, I'm I'm trying to get to another part of your question, which is I think do we. Do we speak specifically in a scriptural way, or do we kind of speak in a natural law way? I guess it seems to me that we that that insofar as we are addressing the civil magistrate, we're trying to we're trying to call the civil magistrate to account or trying to give instruction about what the civil magistrate should be doing. And it seems to me that if the civil magistrate is not is really not called to be doing uniquely Christian things, is not called to be, um, bringing in that sort of eschatological reign of love and justice that we, that we have in the gospel, um, then that's not really our primary mode of discourse with, with uh, government. Uh, I do think that scripture is going to sharpen the way that we talk about justice. It's going to sharpen the way that we, uh, hopefully, uh, our wisdom as we seek to understand the natural order uh, around us. Um, but I don't think that civil government is bringing in a kind of an eschatological justice. And so in that sense, I think to whatever extent we're talking to civil government about its responsibilities, we understand that we're trying to help it understand an earthly provisional kind of justice, which I think is the only kind of justice that our governments can bring here and now. Hmm.
0: That's helpful. It gets into really the heart of the second half of the book. No surprise, we have spent almost all of our time talking about <laughs> the theological considerations and the biblical considerations. But the second half of your book is really wonderful, and um, yeah, was... for those who are listening at home, uh, it's worth buying and reading to for the second half because in it you develop, um, you take up. Oliver O'Donovan's language of political ethics, and you do some applied work. You take the normative views that you've developed through scripture and, and reflection on scripture, um, and you undertake a set of considerations around things like justice and rights, and liberalism, and um, oh, what Pluralism, else? Pluralism,
1: religious liberty, family, and commerce. Family, was, commerce. You
0: know. Several
1: small books within the back of the book. Yeah, uh, it was it was impressive.
0: It's very impressive. So I think what I, you know, we're as we sort of come to the end here, what I, I guess I wonder is um, what sort of comfort for Christians do you think your view provides in the midst of really contentious political, a really contentious political environment like our own? Um, I mean, we have right now, to bring it back to my opening theme, within coronavirus, we have a response to a pandemic that is becoming grossly partisanized, right? Where we have people who are responding to our leaders in ways that align with their party preferences in ways that are really disturbing. So I guess I, I as you think about political ethics and as you think about, ex, uh, uh, working out your views in response to some of the major issues that our society is facing, um, what sort of comfort or, or hope do you think that it provides Christians?
2: Yeah. Um, I think I can mention just a few things and I'll try to be very brief. I mean, I, I think for one thing, um, a lot of my discussion brings out the idea that, that government is legitimate and yet also provisional and limited. And so I think there's an encouragement that, you know, um, political debates, governmental work is, uh, there is a place for that in this world and that, that, that God has instituted these, uh, these bodies for a reason, uh, to do us good. And so, yeah, we can be involved in these things. We can be engaged in these things, but at the same time, uh, I think it's really encouraging to remember that, uh, these are not there for our everlasting hope. These are not there to solve actually the biggest problems uh, of life. Uh, you know, as as the psalmist said, you know, "Put no confidence in princes." Uh, and I would. I, I, and it, it, it seems to me that there's uh, at least what part of what I'm trying to do is to say, look, here's a way that you can you can respect your your uh, civil leaders. You can work for uh, for the promotion of justice in our political communities, but. Uh, it's really good news that we don't have to place our eschatological hope uh, uh, in them, and so I, I would take that as uh, as an important uh, theme that's running that's running through the book. And um, maybe I'll just I'll just leave it at that. It's uh, it, it, the, you know the. I mean, you know, in a day when we, okay, I, I said I was going to leave it there, but maybe I'll make one more comment. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, as we are right in the midst of this whole coronavirus crisis, uh, and, and you're right, I mean, we're, we're seeing uh, we're seeing governments doing unprecedented things. I mean, shutting down businesses, prohibiting worship services, making all sorts of promises of money that doesn't actually really exist. I mean, there's like, this is, it, it, it's remarkable. And, you know, and Actually, I, I, I think an important part of my book as well is to say, look, actually Christians can disagree about some of these, these issues, that these are not, as we think through the implications of our political theology, we actually might come to some different uh, views about what it actually means in detail. And I think in an age in which, uh, as you're saying, there is great partisan divide, it's really, it's it's a real danger that the church itself becomes divided along exactly those partisan divides in that we, we, we end up having, you know, these, uh, we have, you know, this church over here, which is the left wing political church. And we have the church over here. That's the right wing political church or that identifies with this party or that party. And uh, it seems to me really important, uh, really desirable to say, you know what, um, we might disagree. There are ways that we can disagree about certain uh political issues, not necessarily all political issues, but there are a lot of political issues we can disagree about some details and still be united as a worshiping body with faith in Christ. We can still be, there can still be one body, one 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 faith, one hope, one spirit, uh, even as we disagree about some of these um, really um, content, I mean, understandably contentious um, political uh, issues. So uh, if, if, you know, even though my book does try to work out, okay, you know, here's how we might apply the political theology that I'm la- uh, laying out. Uh, I do want to do it in a way that is making clear that these, I, I, I don't think I'm just laying down the old, the, the one Christian, po- uh, political policy, uh, public policy. Um, there are ways that we can debate these things, uh, according to Christian wisdom, Um, and I, I really hope that, uh, a book like mine might help us think better about these things without saying we all have to think in exactly the same way about every concrete issue.
0: Yeah. I think it indisputably does. It's a terrific volume. Um, Dr. Van Druden, we're grateful for you coming on the show and talking about it. Um, this has been a lot of fun.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I have enjoyed it.
0: Uh, For those who are listening at home, the book is Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World by Dr. David Van Drunen, available at bookstores everywhere, or booksellers everywhere, I guess we have to say now, since bookstores are all closed. Um, But do get yourself a copy. It it makes for great reading in the midst of a pandemic, and I mean that non-ironically. It actually does. we, this has been Mere Fidelity it's been a ton of fun if you'd like to join our merry band of supporters the link to do so is in uh, the show notes at Mere Orthodoxy I think that we will be back in the future with other guests I don't have no idea what we're doing this spring but it's going to be great uh, Derek and I will keep holding down the fort and Alistair and Andrew will show up as the Lord inspires them to do so uh, but until <laughs> that happens again this has been Mere Fidelity